Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 21 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're sitting down with Steve French, the president and CEO of The Signatory. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. We're thrilled to share this episode today where you'll get to hear from Steve French. As I mentioned, Steve is the president and CEO of an organization called The Signatory, which aims to partner with generous people and families to help solve some of the world's greatest problems. You'll get to hear Steve's fascinating story and how his successes and failures as an entrepreneur and investor have uniquely positioned him to serve in his current role. Steve also shares some gifting strategies that give us a sneak peek into God's economy and how thoughtfulness and creativity can amplify and maximize the impact of your giving. This conversation taught us a ton and we thoroughly enjoyed it. We know you will too. Before we get started, just a reminder that everything we do here with the Finish Line team is 100% free and always will be. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to help us get the message out, the best thing you can do is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. Now let's get to the show. All right, here we are with Steve French from The Signatory. Steve, we're so excited to have you with us today and to hear a little bit about your story and about the work you do at The Signatory. So thanks for joining us. Guys, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm uh, excited to see how the evening's going to unfold. All right, well... Why don't you get us started just telling us a little bit about your background and your story and and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I really, uh, my life is so providential. I suppose everyone can say that that's a follower of of Jesus. But really, for me, it's set a picture and a tone for really my entire life. I was very, very blessed to be adopted into a family of a nurse and a farmer. They had Really tried hard to have children for about a dozen years unsuccessfully. And needless to say, the early 50s adoption wasn't as prevalent or as easy as it is today. A lot of people say it's still not easy today. But in those days, very difficult. And so my mother, because she was a nurse, uh, had a lot of connections with different physicians. And one in particular was a doctor that she knew well, a Dr. Parker. And Dr. Parker had a young lady that was a farm girl who was pregnant and not married, very young, was not capable of uh, parenting and had made that decision. I always praise God here because, thank goodness, it was a place and time in history, unlike today where abortion was not common or legal, or elsewise, I probably would never have had an opportunity to see daylight. I would have been uh, in glory, you know, with my Savior from the jump. And so, Anyway, she decided to not parent, and Dr. Parker uh, suggested to my parents that they might consider adopting me, because these are the days when parents didn't have a clue whether they were having a boy or a girl. My mother desperately wanted a girl. That had always been her hope. And so three days after I was born, when they came to kind of get a look at me and the revelation came that I was a boy, I think my mother was 
probably hopeful. I always kidded her about it. My father told her, you know, her name was Barbara, and he'd always say, Barbara, you know, beggars can't be choosers. With that, you know, I was allowed to go home with them. I knew that I was adopted from my very earliest remembrances. My parents were always very open about that. And uh, my grandfather on uh, my mother's side, my grandfather, Russell, we called him Papa, which interestingly enough is what my grandchildren call me today. He, he was an incredible influence on my life, and uh, he spent a lot of time with me, and we did a lot of things together. And in the course of those things, he really got to know me and really loved me and loved me unconditionally, even to the point that in my family, it was a little bit of a problem because he loved me to the extent that my cousins, who were quote-unquote natural-born, were a little put out because the favoritism that my grandfather showed me. But when I was 13 years old, and uh, after hearing my grandfather present the gospel many times to me in, in many ways, I was in church one day. I was actually on an Easter Sunday, and the Lord just really brought to mind to me all those things that my grandfather had not only said, but the way in which he had loved me unconditionally. And so keep in mind that in the physical, I was a kid who didn't have any clue who his father was. I'd never seen or heard. I had no uh, I, I certainly knew more about my father in heaven and his attributes and qualities because of the scripture than I ever did about my earthly father. But I had a great role model in my earthly adopted father. And so I had this real keen understanding of what it was like to be accepted into a family, to be made a full heir, because, you know, my parents and grandparents never treated me any differently because I was adopted. And matter of fact, as I said, probably I got more privileges almost because of that. I felt exceptional in some respects, but it really gave me an understanding of how this God that I could not see had paid a price for me, just like my parents had. My adopted parents had paid a price for me. Believe it or not, I have a check, a canceled check. Should have brought it so you could see it, but 500 bucks that my father wrote a check for to the hospital to take care of all of the costs of my being born and any other medical expenses that were associated with that. So I, I really understood that I'd been bought and paid for with a price and that I that had been brought into this family that I wasn't naturally a part of. And so when I heard the gospel, it was like, man, I, this is a picture of my life. This is a picture of, of what was done for me in the physical. Christ is doing for me in the spiritual. So the, the coming to know Christ really set the course for my life in a very providential way, learning that the decisions that I needed to make were not opinions of men, but were actual God's word and, and his plan and purpose for my life. So, you know, God gives us natural talents and abilities to steward. It's not just money that we have to steward. And so one of the talents that God gave me was I was a pretty fast runner. It was a good thing because our family wasn't in a financial place where I could go to college, but I ran pretty quickly. And so I was able to go to college on a track scholarship. And it literally allowed me, because of the natural gifting that God had given me, to pay for my education. You would never have ever thought that a farm kid who the first thing he heard when he went to college was, hey, there goes a redneck. You would never think that the step after college would ever occur to someone with that background, but it did. And that was that uh, Merrill Lynch came to campus to recruit 
I was fortunate enough to get, get an interview, and apparently in the interview, I either said something, did something, or acted, or told a story, or all of the above that caught the attention of them. And so I was actually uh, given an opportunity to go into a management program at Merrill that wound me up eventually in the M&A group doing mergers and acquisitions. I mean, for a kid from the farm going to New York City and having never seen anything taller than the church steeple at the First Baptist Church of Papa Bluff, Missouri, it was quite the shock to the system to be there in the big city and to certainly be doing what I was doing involved in helping to put together, by today's standards, pretty small deals. You know, there weren't many billion dollar deals going on in the mid 70s, even in New York. So the opportunity to learn for eight years in the public markets about how companies operate, how to value them and how to structure and put together those deals was here again, so providential. But as will happen in those things, you know, the enemy is alive and well, and anything that we do that pleases God, he wants to try to move us in a direction that's the opposite of that. And the, the business in New York is, as you might imagine, a pretty tough place to be. And consequently, I really found myself in that proverbial verse that talks about straddling the fence, you know, and being lukewarm. And my spirit man was really wrestling and struggling with that. And my fleshly man was really enjoying all of the benefits and all of the money that I was making. Not a lot of money by today's standards, but it was a huge amount of money in those days. And so struggling with those two things, and I'll never forget it. I came home one afternoon from the office and told my wife, Debbie, who is a true Proverbs 31 woman, always has been one of the things I have admired about her so so much is the kind of woman of God that she is and how she speaks boldly into my life, particularly when she knows that I'm off track or I'm struggling. And I just told her, you know, Debbie, I've got to make a decision. I cannot stay in this position because if I stay there, my flesh is going to corrupt my spirit. And I know that's not what God would have for me. But I don't have a clue where God's leading me. I just know I'm supposed to leave. And she looked at me with just as calm as she could be and said, you know, I've been praying for you. And I knew that this day would come. I just didn't know when it would come. So you go and do whatever you need to do. And wherever God leads us, we'll go together. And so I did. I walked in and resigned, which was quite the issue because they thought I was headed off to the competition for some big competitive compensation package, which was not true. And once they kind of figured that out, they were incredibly confused as to why, where I was in my career, would I ever leave that and go to something that was non-existent? But I knew that that's what God had planned for me. So we came to Nashville, Tennessee, and we did that because my wife is a native Nashvillian. Debbie and I came back to Nashville. I didn't know a soul. But what I knew was that I was in the right place, and I knew that God had given me tools and a, and a business acumen, and I knew that I had helped a lot of other people in the public markets figure out how to buy and sell companies, and I thought, gosh, I've saved some money. I have a little capital. Why can't I do that for myself? And so that really began a more than a 10-year run of buying uh, small, medium enterprise companies I bought about 15 companies during that 10-year uh, span that I owned the majority of and uh, operated 
those companies. And God blessed it in an incredible way. And he blessed the work of our labor in those companies and also uh, our obedience to be stewards from a standpoint of making sure we were tithing and making sure we were contributing. I look back now and it was just a, it was an incredible period of time. So after 10 years of operating these companies, I really uh, became a little restless. It, it almost, I hate to say this, but it almost got to be too easy. We were buying companies undervalued and they were prospering and God was blessing. And, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of profitability in, in the ones that we had. And I decided in the early 90s that I wanted to do startups. I had never done a startup before done the public markets. Now I'd done these small enterprise companies, but I'd never done a ground from the ground startup. And uh, I read a book in about 1992 or so called Being Digital by Nicholas Negroponte, who was at MIT. And it really just intrigued the heck out of me. This whole idea of this new fledgling thing called the internet and the possibilities of that. And so I I had a friend who actually was a pharmacist by education and practice, but he had been fiddling around on things called billboards on this new vehicle called the Internet and communicating through uh, this written form called Pine and Elm and, and had developed these bulletin boards. And it would just fascinated me to no end. And so uh, there were people starting Internet uh, service providers uh, around the country, little companies like America Online and other companies. And I said to Jerry, Jerry, you know, we ought to do something like that here in the middle part of the United States. But I I think that going after this dial up business is probably not where we need to focus because the margins are so thin and it's a volume business. And I think we don't have the capital and and probably the ability to do that. But what if we go after the business market? What if we go after businesses and begin to help them develop uh, an internet and an intranet structure? And then around that time, we started conceiving this idea and really moving toward building that out. Uh, This new thing developed called web pages, right? And no one knew too much about it other than that you could have a, a physical address. It was just a digital graphic version is probably more accurate description of what uh, used to be done on the billboards. And so we said, gosh, if, if we can go and assist companies in getting connected to this new pipe called the Internet and show them how they can move their communications, marketing and into this digital world and they could do it both internally and externally, that'd be pretty cool. And maybe we could make a lot better margins. Well, we did that. Company was called ISDN Net, still called ISDN Net to this day. And that strategy worked out. It was a great success. We had real high margins. We had almost nobody competing with us in that business sector because everybody was chasing residential dial-up. So after a couple of years, we were making a lot of money. And I said to Jerry, man, we need to take this thing public. That was my natural thought, right? I came from that world. And uh, he said, no, I really don't want to do that. If we do, we're going to lose control. And he was, you know, a true technical geek. And he really loved, you know, having his fingers on the dials. For me, it was an exciting opportunity, but it was an investment at the time. And I saw an opportunity for us to make a lot of money. Long story short was that we ultimately decided that he would purchase my interest. He would continue to run the company 
And so I went away with just here again, more money in my pocket and an idea, okay, what's kind of what's next. So I'm going to take about three minutes here because this is the most important thing that's ever happened to me in my life, other than my adoption, coming to know Christ and getting married to my wife, Debbie. So this would be in rank of number four in my life, most important thing that ever happened to me. So after selling my interest in internet service provider company, I started really conceiving an idea that said, gosh, at some point in time, this medium is going to be the preferred way to advertise. And advertisers for such a long time had had a real difficult time of really doing rifle-shotted marketing, right? It was mostly shotgun approach, whether it was radio, print, or whether it was uh, uh, on television through linear. Wasn't a great way to track that, right, that was not cumbersome. And so trying to tell a company what your return on investment is and things we take for granted today, customer cost, uh, acquisition costs, and those kind of things were really difficult to come by. And it just made sense to me that this vehicle where I had an IP address that everyone who logged on could be identified by. And I knew where they were and I knew how to reach them and I could connect with them directly with whatever message I thought they wanted to hear or I need here. It just sounded like, man, we need to take an ad agency and this technology and let them marry each other and have a kid and see what kind of business we come up with. So today, we'd call that a digital media company. I mean, you know, in 1994, when I conceived the idea, and 95, when I launched it, nobody had a clue what it, anywhere in the country, truthfully, had an idea of digital media. Everybody I went to, all the corporations that I had, you know, met with and learned during the internet days, they all loved the idea, just were excited about it. But everybody was hesitant to be an early adopter. So I broke the cardinal rule of investing. Number one, I fell in love with my idea and concept. Number two, I felt so strongly about that that I didn't have any other investors. And I didn't have any other investors because I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was going to allow me to become a billionaire. I mean, why not? It's the dot-com time, right? Everybody, Amazon, just go down the list, Oracle, I mean, Microsoft, early days. I mean, these people are becoming billionaires, and it's really about being first to an idea, controlling the real estate, waiting it out. Many of them at that point were pre-revenue or certainly not profitable in those days. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, all I got to do is just keep throwing money at this thing. And eventually it's going to catch hold. And when it does, I'm going to dominate the market. I'm going to be a billionaire. And Lord, I'm going to do this all to your glory. And man, I'm going to be generous like you just cannot believe. There was only a couple small problems with that other than the obvious things. Number one, I way underestimated the amount of capital it would take to wait that thing out. Probably even in those days, I probably needed something close to $100 million dollars to be able to get there. And I certainly didn't have that capability. And by the time I figured that out, I was so deeply in that nobody wanted to come and come behind me, you know, with an investment. And so what happened was after two years of feeding it every month, I had to come to the conclusion that this dream needed to die. 
I was way too early to the party and I was not going to be able to cause it to survive no matter what. And so I had to come to the realization to I was going to walk and lose every dime I'd put in it. It's the best thing that ever occurred in my career because God loved me so much that he reminded me, hey, Steve, you never came and asked me if I thought that was a good idea to spend my money on that thing. You know, you've been pretty good in the past about including me in your plans. But on this one, you went off way in front of me. And I never told you I was going to make you a billionaire. And I never told you that I wanted you to do this. But yet you did it anyway. And I'm a patient, loving God. So I didn't try to stop you. I didn't put any obstacles up in your way. You know why? Because I wanted you to learn for the rest of your life that you are a steward and I am an owner. And you thought you were the owner and steward and that you would take care of me in that process. So I don't want you to ever forget this lesson. I want you to take it with you forever. And I have not forgotten it. And, you know, most people, if you have a a blow like that, I mean, I literally lost all my liquid net worth and I lost about two thirds of my assets that I had liquidated over a course of year of the two years to continue to fund this thing because I didn't want to be in debt. Uh, That was the only blessing. Didn't go in debt to do that. But it just about took me to my last nickel. And here again, my patient Proverbs 31 wife weathered that whole thing, if you can believe that or not, never, ever accused me, never, ever said, I told you so, never in any way was angry with me. She just loved and prayed for me. And so in that desert that we walked through for a while, I was trying to figure out, oh, my goodness, you know, I've just done the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. What if I don't recover from this? Anyone's ever been in that place? You know, it's a real question. Because God does not promise us that he's going to bail us out of our messes that we make, right? I mean, there's accountability and responsibility for our actions. And I really, matter of fact, I would say that at that point in time with my faith, I really didn't know what was going to happen. But I had another idea for another startup company. I guess I'm not too terribly smart. Most people go get a job. But that entrepreneur bug runs pretty, pretty deep. And, uh, and I generally don't make a very good employee. So, uh, so I had an idea around a legal technology company and I hired a developer, uh, with the last dollars that I had, I started going out and doing research and information with fortune 500 companies around their corporate legal departments and asking them, how do you go about determining Who are you going to spend your legal dollars with? And then once you've done that, how do you determine whether the result and the quality of service and the result that you got, how do you determine whether you got a good deal or not? And it was fascinating. Pretty much anybody that was honest said, I don't know. I hire people I trust and, you know, we get the outcome we get. And we've been doing this for a long time. Being kind of data-driven, that never made a lot of sense to me. And so I asked the question to them. I said, listen, if I could capture all the data around that experience you have with your outside legal counsel, save you money and teach you how to better procure the services, and then give you back predictive knowledge from analytics on the data, is that something you'd be interested in? And they said, heck yeah. I mean, 
can you do that? I said, sure, we can do that. And I didn't have a clue, but I went back and presented that business idea to my developer and we started creating a software platform that would do that. And then uh, fast forward 18 years later, we had taken that idea and that company to 16 countries and three continents and represented about 20% of the global 2000 corporate law departments uh, around the world. God is merciful. There's no other way to say it. He is a merciful God. He is not required to restore us. You know, in, in Job, he restored Job, but he didn't have to restore Job. He chose in his sovereignty to do so. So I'm so grateful to God allowing me to take the years that the locusts ate and to give them back in abundance. So to kind of sum this thing up, in 2016, we exited that company and I made two promises to my wife. She knows me so well. And one of those promises was that I wouldn't buy a company for at least one year. And she she knew that if she could, you know, kind of keep me out of the game for a bit, you know, God would have an opportunity to talk to me. And then the second promise was that she and I would pray together every day. And we did that at 10 o'clock central time here in Nashville at our home. And we would pray that God would show us both what he had for us for the last half of our life. So I was 61, almost 62 years old at the time. And I really had to stop and ask myself the question, the, really the Jeremiah 29, 11 question, right? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I have a plan for you, declares the Lord, a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. At 61, I understood that that plan was his plan, but that it was specific to me and that it was hopeful and it was prosperous, maybe not in the way I had thought. Maybe it wasn't prosperous from a, a standpoint of, of increasing my balance sheet, but it was prosperous as it related to my soul and the building of the kingdom. And so six months went by. That's what we committed to pray. And I was pretty frustrated, just to be honest with you, because we didn't get a really too clear of an answer in those six months. A lot of possibilities, but nothing that really jumped up. I did get clarity that God wanted me to be in some kind of a ministry, but I just didn't know what that looked like. And I'd never been in a ministry. I'm a business guy, you know, and everything that I've ever learned about ministry were things that I didn't necessarily, you know, other than their missions, the operation of them, you know, always kind of lacked a lot to be desired from my perspective. And I didn't really think that I wanted to necessarily do that because I, I love excellence. I think as followers of Christ, we're called to be excellent in everything that we do. So uh, right at the end of the six months, I met a guy by the name of Bill High, who is the founder of the signatory, actually the underlying 501c3 of the signatory, which is called Servant Christian Foundation. It's 21 years old this year. But I met Bill High, and we had some real important things in common. Number one was our belief and understanding that God intends, always has intended to work through the family. Number two is that the family, if they stop and ask, God has a vision and a mission for every family, a purpose for that family. And it's not a one-generation purpose, typically. It is a multi-generational purpose. Scriptures 
replete with examples of families that God has used across many generations. I always real quickly talk about Asaph, who shows up in the Psalms as the composer songwriter for King David and Solomon, Rehoboam. But what's interesting about that is you can go 400 years later into Nehemiah and you see an Asaph who is leading, singing, or worship, the rabbinic worship, in the building of the wall. So here you have a family that over 400 years doing the same thing that God gave them vision for. I think that's what God has intended for family. So Bill and I really resonated in that together. Uh, We resonated in the idea that, as I've said earlier in my testimony, that God is the owner of everything, not just our material resources, but our gifts, our talents, our time. You know, most of us don't think too much about we all have finite amounts of time. Our life is determined. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It has a start and it has a finish. So how do we steward that time that's in between those two points? And so as Bill and I really began to talk, I said, you know, Bill, how can I, you know, how can I help you? And he said, well, why don't you come alongside the foundation and help? And first of all, just tell your story to business owners. There are a lot of business owners out there that your story will resonate with. And we can help them stop and begin to think about, you know, their family and how, what their, the business that they've been given to steward, how does it fit inside the context of their family vision and mission? And how do they do that and create that as a generational process as opposed to uh, one or two or three generations, which is typical in our country and out? And so in August of uh, 2016, I joined Bill High in the Servant Christian Foundation to be able to go out and work with families, principally business families, about 85 percent of the families that the signatory now serves, which is 1,900, almost, we're just a little bit short of 2,000 currently over these last 21 years, that those families, 85% of them, uh, created wealth in very much the same way that I did. Hopefully many of them were better early stewards and, and didn't have the bumps of the road that I had. But, you know, here again, God uses those testimonies to build up the faith of the saints. And that's why I'm not embarrassed to tell it. It was a failing, right? I, I, <laughs> I think that that failing to me is more important than my successes. The successes are, they're cool. Everybody's had them. But that failing is, it w- was unique and had a unique place in my life. And, and I think God gets glorified in that every time I tell it. So uh, that's a pretty windy story to tell you of kind of how God brought me from stem to stern. But it's one I wouldn't trade any part of it for to be quite honest with you. Well, what an incredible story, Steve. I mean, there are so many points in that story where you could just clearly see how God has had his hand over your life and has been guiding every step of the way in in a very intentional way. And it's just very encouraging to see how he has led you through all the different stages that he has. I'm interested if you could Tell us a little bit more about the specific work that the Signatory does and how you guys serve the families and the clients that you work with. I'd be happy to. The Signatory, interestingly enough, is a doing business as name, and it was really a name that was crafted out of what we think is the DNA of our underlying 501c3, which is Servant Christian Foundation started almost 21 years ago, actually 21 years this coming June. 
But the name, the signatory, that signatory is really all the idea that we commit the things that are most important to us with usually the signing of our name, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, or we in even ancient times where kings would take their signet ring or their stamp, the seal of their authority, they would put it in wax and they would they would seal a document. So those things that have significance to us, we seal or sign. The other part of that is that God has always chosen to use most of the time a remnant as an army or an infantry that are out prosecuting the war that is both against the gospel and in an offensive way in a presentation of the gospel. And so this idea that the signatory is built on is the fact that God calls us as stewards of his resources to come together in a committed way, in a convened kind of a way, to solve some of the world's greatest problems uh, by helping support those that are out fighting the war of the battle, and by introducing people who God has provided with provision or resources to be able to support them. So the sanctuary sits in this perfect pivot position, if you will, between families that have great resources and ministries or organizations that are out trying to solve some of the world's greatest problems. This whole idea of the ministry of the signatory began, as I said, almost 21 years ago. And it was the idea of two African-American brothers, uh, one of whom was a banker and a car dealer, Emmett Mitchell, and his brother Thurman Mitchell, who lived in Kansas City, Missouri. Thurman Mitchell was actually the NBC broadcaster on the local affiliate, but he was also an inner city pastor. And then Emmett, the businessman, had a lawyer that represented him and kept him out of trouble and handled all the issues that he had. It was a guy by the name of Bill High, who was a partner in a law firm, a litigation firm there in Kansas City. And so they became friends and really had this common bond in Christ together. And because of Thurman Mitchell's preaching inside the inner city of Kansas City, they had this bird's eye view of, of the needs that were there that needed to have resources to be able to fulfill them. So like any of us who've ever tackled a problem like that in a fledgling kind of way, we pretty quickly come to the end of our resources because most of these problems are, are so encompassing. And so they quickly recognized that they needed to figure out how they could bring in additional resources to be able to figure out how to solve some of the problems that they were facing. And so they rallied around some other Kansas Cityans who had resources that God had blessed with wealth, but they were looking for where God would have them to invest or or place those funds uh, that they were stewarding. And so they, as they went along, they realized that they needed something beyond just their collective cooperation together. And so they formed a 501c3 called the Servant Christian Foundation. And its whole idea was here again, connecting people with resources to issues or problems uh, that needed to be solved in the community. And They had an incredible amount of interest in that, of people with resources coming saying, you know, we'd like to do this. Show us how to do that. How can we do that in a great stewardship kind of a way? 
So Bill High, the lawyer, begins to look around and kind of look and get educated in, in this from a standpoint of a state tax law and tax law and giving and that kind of thing. It really kind of gets educated. And before they know it, they got so much uh, interest in this that Bill can't practice law. And on top of that, the Lord was moving on his heart, uh, really saying to him, Bill, I have a higher calling for you. And so literally, Bill left after they formed the 501c3. They needed someone who could run it. And at the very first board meeting, one of the founding board members said to Bill High, you know, Bill, I've been praying and the Lord has said that you're the guy supposed to lead this. So I guess that means you're going to have to quit your practice and come to work. And Bill tells a story that he remembers that he had already prayed about that. And he knew that that's what God was calling him to do. So out of that was birth servant Christian. And then they started to say, well, we need a vehicle to be able to support this thing that we're doing here. And they looked around and they thought about starting a private foundation, which was pretty common. They thought about the possibilities of, of trying to connect with the local community foundation. They looked at a number of alternatives, but all of those were not really didn't share their faith beliefs and their faith tenets. And so they ran across at a conference this fledgling group that had started not a whole lot before that, about seven years before that, out of Atlanta, Georgia, called the National Christian Foundation. At the time, it was pretty southeastern United States focused, and it hadn't really expanded geographically at all. And so in early discussions, the people in Kansas City said, why don't you become our back office? In other words, let us come and use all the tools and the trust that you have in place to be able to bring in the gifts of all kinds. And and what we'll be is we'll help craft the creative ideas around how to communicate to the families and be the relationship component to this. And so they did that, and it just kind of took off. Now, in 2017, which was the last year that the signatory was part of the National Christian Foundation, those affiliates, as NCF called them, in the world in which I come from, we'd call them franchisees because that's really what it was like, a franchisor and a franchisee. The franchisees were really autonomous, had their own boards, their own 501c3s. They simply shared branding and marketing in the back office together. And so what occurred from 2000 to 2017 was the Kansas City office, which later became known as NCF Heartland because of its location in the country, became the largest affiliate. So it was the first. It became the largest. It was about 33% of the entire volume of the National Christian Foundation. And so um, as will happen uh, in relational opportunities, Bill High became known as a as a real expert and a sought-after speaker on this whole idea around faith, family, and stewardship. And so Bill was speaking at all kinds of conferences and churches and other uh, places. And people from all of the country began to say, gosh, we love what you're saying. It's different than anything we've heard. Your focus on family and God's purpose for family and and how we steward and those kind of things. And so consequently, out of that, 
the idea, which was what NCF was founded around, which was geographically focused, that got challenged because these people from all over the country were saying, hey, we we want to do business with Bill High. And it was challenging because it was a franchise or a franchisee model. Fast forward today, you know, in conjunction with NCF, we collectively determined that it was probably time for the child to go be its own, have its own family and parent. And so in a very, I think, a very appropriate way, we decided to um, separate. I was very privileged to be president at the time we did that. And I can tell you that on both sides, the focus was that God would be honored in everything that we did and said, and that ultimately the wishes of the original stewards from wherever they came, that their wishes would be the deciding factor as to if they stayed at NCF or they came with this new fledgling trust called the Signatory. So in April of 2018, we launched this what was a startup, you know, about the fifth in my career. A little different in that when we launched that startup, we launched with over $500 million in assets, which was quite the pleasure from some of the other experiences I've had of startups. But it really truly was a startup, and it was really miraculous how God provided in the beginning for the signatory to get up and running and how people really latched on to the message here again, centered around family and families coming alongside serving and solving some of the world's greatest problems. So 2018, we began that, and uh, God has blessed that incredibly in these last three years. We've celebrated our, in April, our uh, third anniversary. God has more, almost tripled the number of assets that we've been privileged to help steward. But the most important thing is how much God has sent out to the kingdom. So as an average, unlike many people who are in the donor advised fund space or or what are called sponsors for donor advised fund, about 75% of every dollar that comes into the signatory is granted out in the same year in which it comes in. So we really measure our success as to how much money is going out the door to support the kingdom, not how many assets that we're holding on to. And so it's really, it's just been an incredible privilege to see how God has done so many miraculous things. We're actually back the first part of the year, just went past the $4 billion mark in dollars coming in to our foundation. And we went over the $3 billion mark in April on grants out. And so to think that God has privileged us over these 21 years to help convene $3 billion around the idea of putting forth and expanding the gospel of Christ is a a very humbling place to be and and a real privilege. So, Steve, I'm curious. You mentioned that Signatory serves to connect people who have the means and desire to solve the world's problems and to build the kingdom with solutions and maybe organizations that aim to do that themselves. How do you go about identifying the solutions to the world's problems? Yeah, well, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, the world's identified them for us, right? I mean, when you look at things like there's still not clean water for the whole world to drink, things that we just take for granted, that in this 
21st century that we live in that people are still trafficking in human beings from a standpoint of sexual slavery or the sex trade, that the gospel around the world is still not translated into all the known tongues, tribes, and languages. The fact that, as the word says, that Christ will not return until every ear has heard, and the fact that the gospel is still not penetrated every part of the world from a ministry standpoint. All of these are uh, what we would call BHAGs, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals. But I believe God's in that business, right? I believe God has placed us as followers of him to believe that we can say to that mountain, mountain move. And by faith, if we believe that, that mountain can move. And so these goals are maybe audacious in the world's eyes, but certainly not a big task for the creator of the universe. And so our whole ministry is about encouraging or inspiring people. You know, first of all, that these things can be solved. Uh, There's a number to it. We know that for a, a billion, $300 million, there can be clean water to every single person on the planet, right? That's a huge sum of money, but in God's bank account, it's a drop in the bucket, right? We know that it takes a little over a billion dollars and some coordination to be able to solve this idea around human trafficking, to put into place the things that are necessary to make that a thing of the past. It takes less than a billion dollars to complete Bible translation. So when we look at these in the context of a real strategy and a real plan, then it's pretty easy to see how God is marshalling his people and his resources to be able to come and tackle these problems. Now, there's many others that we could talk about adoption or we could talk about uh, so many things out there in the world that uh, are absolutely important and on, on the heart of God. But these big things that are global in nature, I think God wants to be able to show his people that nothing is impossible with me. His word says that, right? And so we, the signatory as a ministry, get to inspire people to that. And then the next part of what we do is we help to educate them and facilitate their acts of stewardship. And so we do that through the very generous tax laws of the United States of America. As a person who's been blessed to be able to travel and actually spend time in many nations beyond the United States, I can tell you that almost no nations encourage their populace to be charitable even remotely close to what happens in the United States, which in these days and times in which we live is still almost incredible to believe that that level of encouragement from a government level still exists. And so part of what the signature is about is coming along families that God has gifted with all kinds of resources and working with their advisors, whether it's their wealth advisor, their tax advisor, if they're large enough, maybe they have a family office, whatever it may be, and helping them to look at and understand how do I best steward God's assets into the kingdom for his purposes. And the thing that we're always looking for there quite candidly is we're looking at assets that have appreciated tremendously. And so one of the great things about where we find ourselves economically 
in our country anyway, is that practically every asset class that you can think of in the last decade or more has appreciated tremendously. And that's no different in, in God's family of people. And so therefore, his resources were purchased with pennies or nickels on the dollar and now appreciated to dollar dollars or beyond. And God loves, you know, he he tells us in his parables so many times, God is the best investor that there'll ever be and ever has been, right? I mean, his his returns on investment aren't two or three X. His returns on investment are a hundred X, a thousand X. I mean, it's unlimited the capability he has of seeing return on investment. And so when he's teaching us and mentoring us and loving us through his Holy Spirit to be good stewards, he's placing in us that DNA through his Holy Spirit that is the same ability to get return that he gets in his kingdom and has. And so we shouldn't we shouldn't let that slow us down or or set our expectations any lower than they should be. So he loves for us to take a little bit grow it to a whole lot, and then give it away to the benefit of the kingdom because the multiplier in that is unbelievable. You know, I I buy uh, something simple, like I, I bought Apple stock, you know, at $50, and I, you know, sold it at $250, right? So the simple math of that is I had a $200 per share capital gain. You know, if I held it more than a year and I sell it, then I'm subject to pay t- at least 20% on the gain part. So on the $200, I'm going to pay $40 in taxes, right? That's going to happen if I sell the stock. But if I take that stock and I gift it into my donor advised fund, I get a fair market deduction and I'll be able to get to deduct it for whatever it was priced at at the day. So that's $250 a share. So if I had one share, I get a $250 fair market deduction. But guess what? Once it's in my account, if it then is sold, then there is no capital gain tax. So all of that gets to be inside my charitable giving account. I got a deduction for having done it. And so if I'm in a 40% tax bracket, right, I take 40% times 250, I got $100 of actual tax savings, not just a deduction, but actual dollars that I did not pay to the federal government while having $250 over here in my donor advised fund that I can either invest or grant out for God's purposes. Any way you do that, that's $350 on a $250 stock. That's not a bad multiplier, right? The 100 God says, I'll tell you later what I want you to do with that. Maybe I'll let you have some of your wants satisfied out of that $100. Or maybe I'm going to challenge you like I did the rich young ruler and tell you that all of that needs to go to the kingdom, right? And then you'll have to wrestle with whether you're obedient in your stewardship or whether you're not. So God God loves when we take those things that cost a little are worth a lot, and we multiply them to the benefit of the kingdom. So around every strategy, whether it's closely held business ownership or whether it's real estate or whether it's antiquities, I got a call today on a family that has an art collection that they've had for eons, and they're estimating the value of this art collection is almost a billion dollars. And they're beginning to say, 
It's great to look at. Some of it's on loan in museums and different places. Some of it's in their homes. And they're beginning to ask the question, God, what would you have us do from a stewardship standpoint with these beautiful creations that men created? What would you have us to do with that? And so we're actually talking to them about they they would gift that artwork to the signatory. Here again, getting a fair market deduction for that. And then there are a number of courses that we could do with that. We could sell it at auction through somebody like Sotheby's, and then that cash would be available for them to, you know, contribute into the kingdom. If the art is of a spiritual religious nature, and some of it I'm told might be, then there are other places where we could actually loan out or lease out that art and it could receive an income. So there's a lot of creativity involved in working with families creatively and how they take the various assets that they have and use them creatively. One last comment about that very quickly. The vast majority of your audience and of the world, when they make gifts to the charitable things they care about, they're granting out cash. They took cash from their income or cash from the sale of an asset or however they acquired the cash and then they donate it directly. And that's wonderful, right? But when you're doing that, you're doing dollar dollars for the biggest part, right? And those dollars have a cost typically that's greater than $1. When we grant appreciated assets, we're not granting dollar dollars, we're granting pennies on the dollar. We already talked about the multiplier effect of that. And the next piece of this that your audience needs to hear is that Most people who build wealth, particularly great wealth, it's tied up in what I call stuff. (laughs) Only 10 to 20 percent of most people's portfolio is in something that's terribly liquid cash or or marketable securities or something like that. Usually 70, 80 percent of any given person's portfolio, particularly our constituent audience, which is here again, 85 percent are small, medium enterprise business owners. If their assets are tied up in that percent there, then unless you can help them creatively unlock those, they're relegated to just giving out a cash. And what we've learned is by unlocking those assets, they can oftentimes give 10 times as much as they would have given had they given cash. And so the impact of that to ministry is unbelievable. We find ministries all the time that we have the privilege to work with where they've got really committed champions of their ministry who are giving them, you know, 50 or $100,000 a year in cash contributions. And we come alongside and work with them and help them to really look at and uncover the picture of that family. The contributions go to 500000 to a million dollars with actually less cost than the 50 to 100 that they were giving. So, you know, that's the real ministry of the signatory is being able to creatively help people navigate that and uh, use their assets as efficiently as possible for the building of the kingdom. It was interesting to hear you talk about kind of the different strategies around the artwork of that family that you just right. spoke to. I'm curious if any other kind of creative stories come to mind about ways that other families or, or clients have been able to maximize their impact. Yes. So we're very privileged to have a family that we've worked with for a very long time that have collected biblical antiquities, probably had one of the largest private collection of biblical antiquities in the world. And they were shrewd purchasers. 
and they saw those assets appreciate significantly. Even in the purpose of their heart for their collection, it was always about how do we both preserve and then also how do we allow scholars and others to be able to study and learn about what God has done in these regions or in the story of the scriptures. And then the archaeological component, which is a preservation of those which are directly correlated to proof, you know, physical evidence and proof of of the validity and truth of the scriptures. So that being their heart, they began this collection and it became pretty significant. And then we had the privilege of working with them to do just what I said over a series of a number of years, as was appropriate. They gifted those antiquities to the signatory. Here again, they received a fair market value for them. Many times, actually, the tax savings, the real tax savings they got from the contribution, probably covered or reimbursed them for the basis, their actual original acquisition cost. So for them, after the gift, they really didn't have any cost in the antiquities at all. Here again, that's what I talk about. God's economy and investment scheme is really substantially different than I think most people are aware of. So then once those assets sat inside the signatory, I mean, we could have sold them to a dealer and received a capital gain, but because of the initial heart and purpose, those antiquities reside in a museum where some 3,500 of them are on display daily, and people can come and see those. Scholars come and study those. Matter of fact, I had the privilege of sending, I was a trustee of a Christian school in my area here in the sixth grade class, always takes a trip to D.C. as a part of their year. And so we fixed them up so they could go take a VIP tour through the museum. And and so you got these young minds that are being shaped in a Christian worldview that they've studied in Scripture and studied historically ancient history about Israel and Egypt and, you know, what all went on there. And they get to go and, and hear firsthand and hear specific stories about how God worked through those lands and the peoples there. And here is evidence of that. Here are actual artifacts, scroll fragments or actual scrolls themselves or clay tablets, those kind of things, other artifacts. You know, here again, the idea being that those assets are on lease to the museum. The museum pays to have those assets there. So it's, it's here again, a multiple purpose. God's glory is shown through the evidence of the truth of his word and the teaching of young people in that. But it's also in the fact that there's income coming in, and that income here again gets to go out and be invested into other activities and other interests that are specifically gospel-centered. So for me personally, it, that's the really fun part. Uh, one of the fun parts of what we get to do at the Signatory is to come alongside families and come up with creative ways to do this while still making sure that the integrity with which we do them is you know, beyond question and and that we're abiding by the rules and the laws of the United States of America. You know, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's certainly fascinating. I'm sure we could fill up another hour worth of stories of how you guys have been able to amplify and maximize the effect of the resources that God you know, has entrusted us to use towards his kingdom. As we're just about out of time here, I wanted to move on to our manager minute. You know, every 
week, we take a minute to think about the fact that everything we have belongs to God, and, and we're really managers and stewards of that, as, as you have said yourself. And so we like to give our listeners one quick idea for something they might be able to do with any excess that God has blessed them with to manage. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners? Yeah, real quickly, I would say that, you know, for us Southerners, we hardly can say hello in 60 seconds, but I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a real shot here and see if I can't compress an idea down for your manager's minute. You know, I think one of the most impactful things that I have done with my family, and I know we've recommended this to other families, is what we would call a random act of kindness. And we don't have to go any further than the Good Samaritan to see that he stopped and helped somebody he didn't know, invested his time. And so I think if you're trying to teach young ones, and this even, the, there's probably almost no age limit on this. And it doesn't have to be a lot of money, families. I mean, you can give your kids $10, $5, $20, $100. I mean, the, the amount of money is almost immaterial. But just give it to them and let the Holy Spirit work in them and let them go out and really just perform a random act of kindness by giving a gift to someone who's unexpecting it or not expecting it uh, and watch what it does to the receiver, but more importantly, what it does to the giver. Yeah, I love that idea. I have four little kids of my own, and I would love to see what they would come up with with uh, 5 or $10 to use for a random act of kindness. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve. This has been a real pleasure to hear your story and, and the incredible work you guys are doing at the Signature. Keelan, Cody, it's really been a lot of fun, and, and I look forward to being with you guys at another time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. Even better, head on over to the Finish Line forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes, read stories of generosity, and ask questions about setting a financial finish line. Check it out at finishlinepledge.com slash forum. And as always, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 21. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.